This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am Dagena Dor, one of the hosts of the channel. Today, we're talking to Dr. Jack Montachia about his new book, Monks in Motion, Buddhism and Modernity Across the South China Sea, published by the Oxford University Press in 2020. Dr. Chia, welcome to the show. Hi, Dagena. Thanks for having me on the podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. It's a really uh, great opportunity to have you um, speak about your book with us, too. Um, So I wonder if you can begin the interview by saying a few words about yourself and how you became interested in East and uh, Southeast Asian studies, particularly in Buddhism. Uh, Sure, of course. Uh, I'm currently an assistant professor of history and religious studies at the National University of Singapore. Uh, My research focuses on Buddhism and Chinese popular religion in Southeast Asia, overseas Chinese history, and uh, Sino-Southeast Asian interactions. Uh, I I would say that my interest in Buddhism came from my grandmother. Uh, When when I was little, both my parents left me in the care of my grandmother. And uh, in retrospect, this has... um, has proved to be an important experience in uh, learning about Buddhism. My grandma was born in Xiamen in China and migrated to Singapore with her foster mother when she was four. She was a devout Buddhist uh, who prayed to Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, but also worshipped various Chinese deities such as Lai Ma Zhu and Dopegong. And, uh, she, and she often brought me to temples to participate in religious festivals and rituals. So uh, I learned a lot about Buddhism and Chinese religious practices. And, uh, and I also picked up Hokkien, the, uh, the southern Mingnan dialect from her. And yeah, and I remember when I was around, I think, six, around about six my grandma gave me a comic version of the classic novel, A Journey to the West, uh, COT. And I still remember uh, I was greatly intrigued by the kind of magical power and bureaucratic hierarchy of Buddhist, Buddhist saints and Taoist deities depicted in the comic. So uh, my undergraduate education at the National University of Singapore at NUS further inspired my interest in Buddhism, Chinese history, and also Southeast Asian history. The courses I took at NUS, uh, especially under uh, Professor Thomas Dubois, Huang Jianli, and Yang Bing, really deepened my knowledge uh, on the history of Chinese religion, uh, Chinese diaspora, and, and society. So uh, I so, uh, my senior thesis at the time entitled Buddhism in Singapore-China Relations, uh, Venerable Hong Chuan and his visits examines the diplomatic significance of uh, Venerable Hong Chuan's eight visits from China, uh, from Singapore to China between 1982 and 1990. So uh, my thesis at the time discusses how Buddhism served as a political tool to foster uh, the international relations between two countries in the period prior to the establishment of official diplomatic ties. So I, I would say that the research process was a defining period for, of my undergraduate life for which I acquired important skills and knowledge 
in conducting archival research and fieldwork. And I would say that my childhood experience and college education pretty much shaped my interest in East and Southeast Asian Buddhism. Mm, thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Um, I also was introduced to a journey to the West uh, in comic book form um, when I was a kid. <laughs> and yeah, like you said, the, the bureaucratic um, setting, right, of, of the deities and, and the Buddhas and the Bodhisattvas was really interesting too. Um, so that was a, uh, a kind of common point that we have. Um, so before we jump into the book, um, can you maybe tell us a little bit uh, about how you came to write Monks in Motion? Uh, what led you to the project? <laughs> sure. So uh, I, I was drawn to the belief and practices of, of the Chinese diasporic communities in Southeast Asia since I was an undergraduate student. Uh, when I first started my master's in East Asian studies at Harvard, when I studied Chinese Buddhism and history with professors James Robson and Michael Zoni, I knew I wanted to study Chinese Buddhism but I was not very sure if I wanted to focus on China or the broader East Asian uh, region. And gradually, the Singaporean in me told me that I should focus on Buddhism in my home region in Southeast Asia. So uh, therefore, after my master's at Harvard, I went to pursue my PhD at Cornell, which some people call the Mecca or Southeast Asian Studies because Cornell has a famous Southeast Asia program which produced many generations of Southeast Asianists. But as a scholar of Buddhism, I prefer to call Cornell the Buddhaya of Southeast Asian Studies. <laughs> so, uh, by the time I started my PhD, I already knew I wanted to write about the lesser uh, known and rarely studied Chinese Buddhist communities in maritime Southeast Asia, especially in Indonesia, Malaysia, and Singapore. Um, during my graduate work at Cornell, my primary advisor, uh, Eric Tatliokozo, taught me transnational Islam and maritime history. My secondary advisor, M. Blackburn, taught me Pali and Theravada Buddhism and introduced me to her work on Indian Ocean Buddhism. I would say that their research has influenced me a lot in thinking about uh, the history of Buddhism, monks, and resources in motion between China and Southeast Asia. Therefore, I wrote my dissertation on the connected histories of Buddhist communities between China and Southeast Asia, which formed the basis of my book. Thank you. Yeah, and, and your book is really a fresh perspective and, and explores this transnational um, kind of Buddhist network or Buddhist networks, uh, plural, across the South China Sea, in, especially in the 20th century, right? Um, so in the book, you propose this really interesting idea of a South China Sea Buddhism, uh, which is an idea that allows us to see transnational Buddhist mobility and networks across regions. Um, so can you please tell us more about this idea? Sure. So uh, my book, Monks in Motion, is a study of Buddhist, uh, Chinese Buddhist migration in the 20th century. But uh, it also tells the connected histories of Buddhist communities in China and maritime Southeast Asia. Uh, Monks in Motion like, examines the uh, intellectual and institutional history of Buddhism in China and also in Indonesia, Malaysia, and Singapore through the lives and careers of three prominent monks, uh, Chukmo, Yen Pei, and Asim Jiarakita. My research is uh, actually inspired by three simple questions. First, uh, why did Buddhist monks migrate from China to Southeast Asia? Second, how did they participate in trans-regional Buddhist networks across the South China Sea? And third, what were the broader implications of these Buddhist connections? So um, in Monks and Motion, in addition to documenting the ideas, activities, and projects of three of the most prominent uh, Chinese monks in Southeast Asia, uh, my book has two aims. The first is to present the connected history of Buddhist communities in China and Southeast Asia through synthesizing institutional and intellectual history. 
as well as local and global history. My focus is how migrant monks acted as agents of uh, knowledge production in the process of uh, selective reformation of Chinese Buddhism by reconfiguring Buddhist ideas. And second, I actually aim to challenge these conventional categories of Chinese Buddhism and Southeast Asian Buddhism by looking at the lesser known yet uh, no less historically uh, significant Chinese Buddhist communities in the maritime Southeast Asian region. Um, therefore, my books uh, aims to demonstrate that Chinese migration contributed to the spread of Buddhism and the establishment of new Buddhist institutions in the diaspora. Um, my book is based on a wide range of sources, including uh, collected works, commemorative books, uh, periodicals, some um, unpublished temple uh, documents, archival records, uh, lit- liturgical texts, uh, temple gazetteer, epigraphical materials, and as well as oral history interviews. Uh, I conducted uh, archival research and fieldwork in uh, Indonesia, Malaysia, Singapore, Hong Kong, Taiwan, and mainland China, which, uh, which was really fun. <laughs> the, the main sources uh, in my book are uh, the collected works, uh, commemorative uh, volumes, and temple publications. And uh, besides the print uh, sources, I also uh, refer to unpublished temple records and archival, uh, archival documents, which I hope to, to, uh, to understand that uh, how these uh, Buddhist uh, connections uh, took place in, uh, in between China and Maritime Southeast Asia. And uh, oh, I also uh, used 13 oral history interviews uh, during my field work, which I, where I interviewed monastics and lay Buddhists who were disciples or associates of the three months. Thank you. Yeah, with this really kind of comprehensive, diverse collection of sources and also uh, oral histories and interviews that you collected in the book, um, and also through this uh, idea of, of the transnational South China Sea Buddhism, um, you, you kind of argue in the book that it allows us to move away from this China-centered uh, perspective right, in the study of Chinese Buddhism, as well as um, Holmes Welch's claims concerning the apathetic attitudes of the overseas China um, with regard to reforming or modernizing religion. Um, so can you maybe elaborate on this point, right? How does your project allow us to move away from this China-centered perspective in, in Buddhist studies? Thank you. So um, in recent years, uh, scholars have been paying closer attention and producing English language scholarship in the field of modern Chinese Buddhism. Many of these uh, recent studies have contributed to our knowledge on the emergence of reformist monks, the establishment of lay associations and Buddhist seminaries, uh, the rise of Buddhist popular culture, and uh, also the discussion about science and and Buddhism during the Republican period. While previous scholarship uh, offers fascinating insights into the development of Chinese Buddhism during the Republican period and uh, and a a lesser extent into the uh, the era uh, of the the, uh, People's Republic of China, PRC, they suffer from two shortcomings. First, uh, I noticed that much of the literature has adopted a primarily China-centered perspective, focusing only on the development of Chinese Buddhism within China. The Republican period saw the beginning of globalization of Chinese Buddhism as a result of Chinese migration and also improvement in transnational communications so therefore, I thought that is a need to consider the cross-border interactions and networks between Buddhist clerics and, and laity in China and abroad. And second, existing work neglects the significance of Chinese migration and the role of the overseas Chinese in the propagation and innovation of Chinese Buddhism in China and overseas. So uh, interestingly, uh, as I pointed out in my book, Holmes Welch simply dismisses the importance of Chinese migration in his uh, classic trilogy. And uh, his statement on the insignificance of overseas Chinese 
seem to be conflict with the recent scholarship on Buddhist revival in post-Cultural Revolution China. In fact, a number of scholars have noticed the vital contributions of the overseas Chinese in the restoration and revival of Buddhist institutions, especially in the southeastern part of China since the Reform and Open Door period. So my book challenges Welsh's claim uh, concerning the apathetic attitude of the overseas Chinese. I suggest that uh, in my book that several issues need to be addressed to better understand the connected history of Buddhism in East and Southeast Asia. The first issue is that of Chinese migration and the spread of Chinese Buddhism to Southeast Asia. The second concerns the participation of Chinese monks in the transnational circulations of people, ideas, and resources in the South China Sea. The third is about the role of Chinese diasporic monks in the advancement of Buddhist modernism in maritime Southeast Asia. And uh, finally, uh, the, the last point deals with the rise of maritime Southeast Asia as a center for Chinese Buddhism in the periphery following the establishment of the PRC uh, on the main, uh, in mainland China. Yeah, thank you for uh, clarifying that. And another really important point that your book uh, points out is that transnational networks of South uh, China Sea Buddhism also allows us to rethink outside of this um, framework of Southeast Asian Buddhism, which scholars uh, tend to associate with Theravada Buddhist, uh, Buddhism or Theravada Buddhist majority on mainland Southeast Asia. Um, so why is this the case in scholarship and uh, what is the corrective that your book offers, the intervention? Thank you. Um, the, the term Southeast Asian Buddhism often calls to my Theravada Buddhism, which is the uh, dominant form of Buddhism in mainland Southeast Asian states of Burma, Cambodia, Laos, and Thailand. And uh, in contrast, maritime Southeast Asia often, uh, in a way, conjures the image of the Malay archipelago consisting of Muslim majority states, as well as the predominantly Catholic Philippines. Uh, in, in, in a way, Singapore, on the other hand, is deemed as the kind of an anomaly uh, because of, its pre- of the predominant uh, Chinese and Buddhist population. So scholars of Southeast Asia tend to highlight the cultural and historical differences between mainland and maritime Southeast Asia by emphasizing the religious contrast between mainland Theravada Buddhism and maritime Islam and Catholicism to conceptualize the religious diversity of Southeast Asia as, as a region. So in so usually when we uh, if we attend a Southeast Asian studies uh, course in, in college, we will often learn about the kind of the religious diversity of the re- of the region. But the, the problem is that in doing so, this studies uh, and uh, this kind of uh, uh, approach failed to recognize the presence of Buddhism in maritime Southeast Asia and its significance among uh, Chinese communities in the predominantly uh, Islamic and Catholic region. And on the other hand, uh, scholars of Buddhism have often limited the study of Southeast Asian Buddhism to the Theravada Buddhist majority on the mainland. For instance, uh, Dona Sherry's seminal work that many of us are familiar with, The Buddhist World of Southeast Asia, focuses only on Theravada Buddhism in Myanmar, Thailand, Laos, Cambodia, and Sri Lanka. <laughs> and uh, in other words, previous scholarship has considered the category of Southeast Asian Buddhism to be almost synonymous with Theravada Buddhism. In my book, I suggest three possible reasons to explain the dichotomy between mainland Theravada and uh, maritime Islam and Catholicism in the study of Southeast Asia. Uh, uh, First, this could be attributed to the historiography of uh, writing nation-state history of Southeast Asia. Scholars of Southeast Asian Buddhism and historians of Southeast Asia tend to write the narrative of Southeast Asian countries in a linear fashion from early modern Buddhist kingdoms to modern Buddhist majority nation states. The narrative of the uh, evolution of Buddhist kingdoms 
neglects the Chinese presence and the connectivity of Chinese monks across the South China Sea. A second reason could be the form of Buddhism in maritime Southeast Asia. The majority of Buddhists in Indonesia, Malaysia, and Singapore are ethnic Chinese uh, following Mahayana Buddhism. Therefore, um, scholars of Buddhism in maritime Southeast Asian states tend to come from a background of Sinology and East Asian Buddhist studies and to consider Chinese Buddhism in Southeast Asia as an extension of Chinese Buddhism rather than as Southeast Asian Buddhism. And furthermore, many of them publish their work in Chinese, making them inaccessible to scholars of Southeast Asia who do not read the language. Uh, third and uh, closely related to the second reason, academic boundaries and uh, institutional limitations create, create a gap between scholars trained in Southeast Asian Buddhism and East Asian Buddhism. While scholars of uh, or Southeast Asian Buddhism are linguistically trained in Pali and mainland Southeast Asian languages, uh, scholars of East Asian Buddhism usually study Chinese, Japanese, Korean, and a uh, modern European research language, usually French. So for this reason, scholars of Southeast Asian Buddhism are equipped with country-specific linguistic and cultural knowledge under the assumption that they will be studying Theravada Buddhism on the mainland. So, so far, there has been little research on both Mahayana and Theravada Buddhism in maritime Southeast Asia. Uh, therefore, my book extends the study of Southeast Asian Buddhism beyond Theravada Buddhism on the mainland to look at uh, South China Sea Buddhism in the maritime region. Uh, I hope to correct the dichotomous framing of mainland Theravada Buddhism and uh, maritime Islam and Catholicism in the historiography of Southeast Asia by shedding light on how Chinese migration led to the emergence of Buddhist communities in maritime Southeast Asia. Thank you. And your book is definitely breaking these uh, national boundaries, right? looking at or giving us more of a broader uh, perspective at things. Um, and the book begins in chapter one with the discussion of this history of migration, right? especially um, the migration of Chinese um, um, uh, immigrants and also uh, Buddhists, right, to maritime Southeast Asia between the 19th century um, to the first half of the 20th century, and also their roles in the spread of Buddhism to the Malay archipelago. Um, so before these migrations took place, um, in the book you mentioned that Buddhism had already been practiced in many of these regions in historical times. Um, so what were Buddhist practices like before and after Chinese migrations in the 19th and 20th centuries? So um, Buddhism arrived in the Malay archipelago around, uh, fourth, around the 4th to the 5th centuries because of the trading connections between the Malay kingdoms and India. The Sri Vijaya, uh, the Sri Vijaya kingdom became an important Buddhist kingdom and contributed to the expansion of Buddhism in the, re in the region uh, from the 8th to around the 12th century. And uh, the Sri Vijaya kingdom coexisted with another Buddhist kingdom in the Malay archipelago, uh, the Silendras uh, 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 kingdom in Java. So the Silendras were active promoters of Mahayana Buddhism and constructed the Borobudo, the world's largest uh, Buddhist temple complex, which is now a UNESCO World Heritage Site. And I really encourage everyone uh, to visit this place, which is really fascinating. Um, so, yeah, I thought um, Buddhists in the early Buddhist kingdoms in the Malay archipelago uh, practice uh, a mix of Mahayana and exoteric Buddhism. And uh, the, Maj the Majapahit Empire that existed from the 13th to 16th century was a Javanese Hindu-Buddhist empire in Southeast Asia based on the island of Java. And uh, it was said to be the largest empire ever to form in Southeast Asia 
Although uh, some nowadays, a lot of historians are, are in a way quite skeptical about real, the size of the Majapahit Kingdom. Um, but um, the arrival of Islam in the Malay archipelago during the 13, around the 13th century led to uh, the conversion of the population to Islam. So by the 20th, 20th century, Islam is the religion of approximately 140 million people in Southeast Asia, concentrated in the Malay archipelago that stretches from uh, southern Thailand through Malaysia and Indonesia and north uh, to uh, the southern Philippines. Uh, large, really large few mass Chinese migration to Southeast Asia began in the mid 19th century and lasted through the 1930s. These massive movements of the Chinese population could be attributed to both the push factors within China and the uh, bull factors in Southeast Asia. Um, Qing China's defeat in the Opium War and the subsequent signing of unequal treaties had uh, significant consequences on Chinese migration to Southeast Asia. In other words, colonialism in Southeast Asia, uh, coupled with the Western opening of China, created the mechanisms for moving Chinese labor from China to Southeast Asia. And uh, Chinese migrants uh, were active Asians spreading uh, Chinese Buddhism and numerous deity cults into Southeast Asia. Uh, this was because uh, for many migrants, the long journey to foreign lands filled them with a deep sense of anxiety and prompting them to turn to religious belief and practices with not only fulfill the spiritual needs of, uh, of these migrants, but also enhance their confidence and give them a greater sense of security and protection in their new work and living environment in colonial Southeast Asia. The uh, Chinese communities worship these deities for uh, for a variety of reasons, including like longevity, marriage, promotion, and protection. But more interestingly, as revealed in a number of sources, uh, these overseas Chinese uh, communities did not distinguish Buddhist deities from Chinese local gods. And they worship these sacred images by lighting candles and incense sticks. And many of them uh, venerated the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas along with Taoist deities and practiced the Confucian rite of ancestor worship, just like my grandma, just like my grandmother. <laughs> this form of, uh, of what I, I would call pre-institutional Chinese Buddhism, which some scholars uh, considered as the unity of three teachings, or San He of Confucianism, Buddhism, and Taoism, was common among the overseas Chinese in Southeast Asia. And uh, furthermore, Chinese uh, merchants, not Buddhist monks, were responsible for running the Buddhist temples in Southeast Asia uh, prior to the last decade of the 19th century. The, the early Chinese migrant monks uh, who resided and performed religious ceremonies in the temples were less educated and could barely understand the meaning and uh, significance of the Buddhist scriptures they chant in classical Chinese. The institutional form of Chinese Buddhism uh, only appeared in maritime South Asia during the last decade of the 19th century. And by institutional Buddhism, I refer to uh, the, Buddha, the form of Buddhism as an organized religion with the systems of teachings, rituals, clerics, and organizations. The arrival of uh, educated Chinese monks in the Malay archipelago contributed to the institutionalization of Buddhism and the subsequent monastery building efforts among the overseas Chinese communities. Uh, moreover, unlike their predecessors who were primarily uh, kind of richer specialists, this new group of migrant monks who received their monastic training in China were concerned with the dissemination of, the, of Buddhist doctrines uh, to the overseas Chinese communities. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it 
a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Thank you uh, for your answer. And um, so the heart of your book focuses on three really incredibly fascinating transnational Buddhist figures um, in the story of South China Sea Buddhism um, or, you know, the monks in motion, right? There's three of these monks in motion that you um, kind of examine in the book. And chapter two first introduces um, Chuck Moore, who you argue uh, redefined the basis of being Buddhist in Malaysia. Um, so who is he and how did he redefine what it meant to be Buddhist in Malaysia? Yeah. So uh, today, many Buddhists consider Chuck Moore or Zhu Moore to be the father of uh, Malaysia's Chinese Buddhism, and they call him the Dama Hansi Fu Jiao Zi Fu. In 1913, uh, Chen De An, who uh, became uh, Chuck Moore, was born near the foot of Mount Yandang or Yandang San in the Lecheng County of Zhejiang Province. He became a monk when he was 12 and uh, later enrolled at the uh, famous Mingnan Buddhist Institute or uh, uh, Mingnan Fo Yuan in Xiamen when he became a student of a Buddhist reformer Tai Shi. Um, following the Communist Party's victory and the establishment of the PRC in 1949, Many Chinese monks feared commun- uh, communist hostility towards re- religion and therefore decided to leave mainland China. So Chuck Moore uh, first left for Macau, which was under Portuguese rule, to become the founding advisor of the, um, of the Macau Buddhist Society. And uh, in 1954, he decided to migrate to Penang and uh, remain in Malaysia until his death in 2002. During his um, five-decade uh, religious career in Malaysia, he served as the, an advisor to the Porte School, founded and served as the inaugural president of the Malaysian Buddhist uh, Association, established the Triple Wisdom Hall or Sanhui uh, Jiang Tang, and started the um, Malaysian Buddhist Institute. Um, in 1998, uh, Chukmo became the first Buddhist monk in Malaysia to receive the title Datuk from the head of state um, of Penang for his contribution to Buddhism and education. When he first migrated to Penang, the majority of Malaysian Chinese knew little about Buddhist doctrines and practice a mix of Buddhism, Taoism, and uh, Chinese popular religious practices, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, furthermore, Buddhism was commonly associated with death and funeral uh, rituals. So, uh, Chukmo advocated for national Buddhist identity based on the principle of human life Buddhism or Ren Shen Fu Jiao stressing the need to incorporate uh, Buddhism into one's life, practice Orthodox Buddhism, or Zhenxing Fo Jiao, and uh, take refuge in the Triple Gems, the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. Uh, In other words, he wanted to invent a new definition of being Buddhist for the Malaysian Buddhist community. Uh, to, To promote Buddhist education, he contributed to the expansion of the Pote School, established the Malaysian Buddhist Association, uh, Triple Wisdom Hall, as well as the Malaysian Buddhist Institute, which were crucial in disseminating uh, Buddhist doctrinal knowledge and facilitating the intra-religious conversion among the Buddhist uh, community in uh, Malaysia. In other words, in, uh, in Chukmo's uh, interpretation of Buddhist modernism, we find a conjunction of so-called self-proclaimed orthodoxy and uh, institutional building. Uh, In his attempt to create a national form of Chinese Buddhism for the uh, modern Malaysian nation, he wrote about orthodox Buddhism uh, and promoted the importance of refuge-taking in relation to Buddhist scriptures. 
uh, as I argue in my book, this was articulated in the context of post-colonial Malaysia to win Buddhist converts and to present Buddhism as a modern and rational religion in a majority Muslim nation. Yeah, his story is really fascinating. And, and a really interesting point that you make in this chapter is that um, although previous studies on um, Chinese Buddhism in Malaysia have described Chuck Moore's efforts as a quote-unquote revival, um, you argue that neither revivalism nor revitalization actually aptly describes uh, Chuck Moore's reforms in post-colonial Malaysia. Um, so what's the alternative framework um, that you would suggest? Oh, thank you. That's a, that's a great question. <laughs> uh, well, though previous studies on uh, Chinese Buddhism in Malaysia have suggested that a revival or revivalism and revitalization of the religion occurred in the post-colonial period. While uh, the late traveling contends that Chinese Buddhism in Malaysia experienced a so-called revival without revivalism, and suggest that the uh, development of Buddhism was quiet instead of the noisy kind of revival. Uh, Chi Bing Tan prefers the term uh, revitalization to revivalism because he considered uh, revivalism a term that is associated with Islamic revivalism caused by long-term conflict between the Muslim world and the West. Tan Liao, on the other hand, suggests that how Buddhist revitalization in Malaysia could be defined as the strengthening of Buddhism into a more organized religion due to the arrival of new ideas uh, via historical and contemporary translocal networks and influence from the broader social and political transformation in a way to transform Buddhism to fit the modern category of religion as defined by the dominant discourse of modernity. However, in my book, I argue that neither uh, revitalism nor revitalization describes Chukmo's reforms in post-colonial Malaysia. Uh, this was because Chukmo redefined the basis of being Buddhist in Malaysia by drawing on Tai Chi's ideas of human life Buddhism or Renshin Fujiao. Uh, he encouraged intra-religious conversion by advocating a Malaysian Chinese Buddhist identity that emphasized this worldly practice of Buddhism and uh, promoted a vision of Buddhist orthodoxy and established new Buddhist spaces for the promotion of religious education. In other words, Buddhism did not experience uh, a state of decline prior to its arrival to necessitate a revival or revitalization. Uh, on the contrary, uh, I argue that Jumo, what Jumo did was to displace the existing form of Buddhism in Malaysia with its interpretation of human life Buddhism. Thank you for your clarification. Yeah, displacement um, seems to be more of an accurate description in this case. Definitely, I agree. Um, and chapter three leads us into the life story of Yan Pei, uh, who is also considered to be one of the four eminent monks of modern Singapore um, and a pivotal figure in introducing Buddhist modernist ideas into, into the global city-state. Um, so please tell us more about him and his efforts. Mm-hmm. So um, Singaporean Buddhists uh, generally remember Yan Pei as a scholar, social worker among uh, responsible for bringing the ideas of humanistic Buddhism or Renjian Fujiao to Southeast Asia and promoting them in his lectures and writings, uh, as well as his social activism. Uh, he was born in 1917 into a poor farming family in the Yangzhou, County, uh, Yang, Yangzhou city in Jiangsu province. In 1929, he was ordained as a monk. Yan Pei was very much a product of, of the uh, Buddhist modernist movement in Republican China. Uh, and like many of his contemporaries, such as uh, Chuk Mo, Yan Pei received formal monastic training at Buddhist seminaries, where he was influenced by uh, Tai Chi's vision of human life Buddhism that I uh, briefly talked about earlier, as well as Yin Sun's ideas of humanistic Buddhism. Yan Pei's 
vision and uh, ideas of Buddhist modernism based on the visions of humanistic Buddhism emphasize the active propagation of the Dharma, incorporation of religious practices into everyday life, and shifting the focus on afterlife salvation to this worldly social engagement. So uh, after the Chinese Civil War, uh, as I mentioned earlier, many prominent Buddhist monks fled from mainland China uh, to Taiwan and Southeast Asia, which led to the spread of humanistic Buddhism. So uh, after uh, the communist victory and the establishment of the PRC in 1949, Yen Pei left China for Hong Kong and later settled in Taiwan with his teacher and friend Ying Sun. During Yen Pei's uh, decade-long career in Taiwan, he made three trips to Southeast Asia in 1958, 1961, and 1964, where he contributed to the conversations between Theravada and Mahayana Buddhist monastics and established connections with the Southeast Asian Buddhist community. Yenpei initially wanted to migrate and spread Buddhism in Vietnam, but was unable to do so because of the Vietnam War. So in, 19, uh, in 1964, he decided to uh, migrate to Singapore and uh, spend the remaining 32 years of his life building a Buddhist community in post-colonial Singapore. His religious career in Singapore can be uh, in a way divided into two phases. The first as the abbot of the Lingfeng Prashna Auditorium and uh, subsequently as a social activist and founding chairman of the Singapore Buddhist Welfare Services. During the first phase of his career uh, from 1964 to 1979, Yen Pei was concerned with the lack of Dharma activities in Singapore. Um, though he built a modern auditorium and pioneered activities such as the uh, weekly Dharma lectures, group practices, and Sunday school, which were uncommon among Buddhist organizations during that time. Yenpei also relied on his networks to make his auditorium a nodal point in the global Buddhist networks, thus allowing him to invite monks from uh, Asia, Australia, and even North America to visit and speak to his congregation. Um, the publication and uh, circulation of his collected works of mindful observation earned him a reputation as one of the preeminent scholar monks of Chinese Buddhism in the Southeast Asian region. In the second phase of his religious uh, career from the 1980s to his death in 1996, um, Yen Pei became a social activist and founded the Singapore Buddhist uh, Welfare Services. He was actively engaged with secular social issues that were of concern in Singapore society. Yenpei's um, Buddhist welfare services play an important role in promoting elder care and filial piety, organ donations and kidney dialysis, uh, as well as drug prevention and rehabilitation against the backdrop of a rapidly developing Singapore. Yenpei preached that Buddhist doctrines um, preach Buddhist doctrines not only to justify the needs for Buddhists to be socially relevant and contribute to social welfare, but uh, he also went so far as to say that Buddhist teachings could be used as practical solutions to addressing national and secular issues. Yeah, and Enpei, as the um, social activist, um, was also a monk who had a very clear class consciousness, right? That um, that you kind of uh, discussed in the chapter, and um, in his vision of this kind of Buddhist modernism, he also believed that Buddhism needs to be socially engaged and almost politically engaged in a way, right? But at the same time, in the chapter, you also remind us that um, Buddhist activism in Singapore was very much limited, in many ways, by the political context at the time, which prohibited religious organizations from organizing mass political and social movements. So how did Yen Pei's and his larger reformist Buddhist movements um, respond to the local politics? Buddhist activists in Singapore were involved in defending their religious interests and uh, encouraging social 
social welfare activism, but not in politically sensitive concerns over, uh, for instance, like human rights, the environment and labor issues as in other countries in Southeast Asia. The nature of Buddhist activism in Singapore was limited by the political context, uh, as you mentioned. The strict laws of the Singapore government prohibited civil society and religious organizations from organizing mass political and social movements. So rather than engaging in militant confrontation with the government uh, or offending the state authorities through public protests, Buddhist activists such as Yen Pei work closely with the authorities to promote social welfare and and community services. Um, Yen Pei relied on his knowledge and understanding of Buddhist teachings and principles to legitimize his social welfare activities. So, for instance, he drew on Buddhist ideas of compassion and loving kindness and the precept of not taking intoxicants as practical solutions to secular social issues, including uh, elderly care, organ donation, and drug rehabilitation. But at the spiritual levels, uh, proponents of humanistic Buddhism believe that enlightenment can be achieved in this world and therefore strive to build a pure land on earth. For Yen Pei, one of the ways to practice Buddhism uh, in the human world is to be an active citizen in addressing and contributing to contemporary, in a way, to contemporary uh, social issues. Um, in fact, uh, Singapore's People's Action uh, Party government or the PAP government co-opted Buddhist activists and was pleased to endorse their efforts. Um, Yen Pei seemed happy to collaborate with the state authorities. Um, he was a pioneer member and a Buddhist representative of the Singapore Presidential Council for Religious Harmony, established under the Maintenance of Religious Harmony Act that was enacted in the parliament in November 1990. And uh, he also invited uh, ministers uh, such as Ong Teng Chung and George Yeo to officiate the opening, of, uh, the opening ceremonies of his social welfare organizations. Therefore, uh, there was no surprise that Yen Pei's uh, contributions to social activism were recognized and even honored by the Singapore government. So the Singapore, uh, Singapore's PAP government awarded Yen Pei the Public Service Medal in 1986 and the Public Service Star in 1992 to recognize his contributions to social welfare and medical services. Thank you. He's another really fascinating character um, in your book, definitely. And the third monk in motion um, is introduced in Chapter 4, um, Ashin Jinarakita, um, whom Indonesians believe to be the first Indonesian-born Buddhist monk. Um, he also had a vision of Buddhist modernism for Indonesia, uh, but in this case, it was an endeavor to, uh, quote-unquote, make Buddhism less Chinese um, in order to safeguard the survival of Buddhism as a minority religion in the world's largest uh, Muslim nation. So what were his reasons for this? Well, uh, this has a lot to do with the history and politics of post-colonial Indonesia. Uh, following the 30th of September movement in 1965, General Suharto became president and ushered in 31 years of authoritarian rule, uh, known as the New Order or Order Baru in Indonesia that lasted until his resignation in 1998. Suharto's government blamed Communist China for the 30th of September movement and for its influence over the Indonesian Communist Party and decided to cut diplomatic ties with the PRC in 1967. And the Suharto's uh, government passed a series of laws and presidential orders to assimilations aimed at um, Chinese-Indonesians and emphasize the Banchan Silat principle of belief in the one almighty God using religion as a force to counter AD's communist influence. Uh, Suharto's assimilation policy had a profound uh, impact on Indonesia's uh, Buddhist community and the Chinese-Indonesian population in general. Uh, 
Uh, first, the requirement for Indonesian citizens to declare their religion caused some Chinese Indonesians who did not have a formal religious affiliation to state either Buddhism or Confucianism uh, as their religion, as Taoism was not uh, one of the recognized religions. Many Chinese who worship at Chinese temples declared Buddhism as their religion out of convenience. And uh, this new converts, uh, which knew little or nothing about Buddhism or knew nothing about Buddhist teachings, contributed to an increase in the number of Buddhists in Indonesia. Um, second, the 1966 regulation on name changing and the 1967 regulation on the public display of Chinese religion, beliefs, and customs had an immediate impact on the Buddhist community. The Chinese names of uh, Buddhist temple had to be changed to Pali or Sanskrit names to appear assimilated into Indonesian society. For instance, uh, Guanghua Si changed its name to Vihara by Putya Sasana. Um, furthermore, for the following a ban on all Chinese events in public, Buddhist temples could no longer organize religious uh, ceremonies for Chinese festivals, such as the Lunar New Year, the Hungry Ghost Festival, and the Mid-Autumn Festival. Uh, furthermore, Chinese Buddhists could no longer use Chinese languages and characters in their liturgy, uh, in, in their liturgy and scriptures. Uh, as a result, um, Mahayana scriptures and mantras in Chinese were transliterated into Roman alphabet. Therefore, uh, Ashin Jarakita had to make Buddhism less Chinese in order to safeguard the survival of Buddhism as a minority religion. His Buddhayana organizations used Pali language texts together with a selection of transliterated Chinese Buddhist texts for their religious activities. Uh, in addition, to make Buddhism less Chinese, more and more Indonesian compatible with the first principle of the Panchasila. Um, Asinja Kita introduced the concept of Sakya Api Buddha as the Buddhist version of an almighty god. He claimed that the concept of Sakya Api Buddha could be found in the Sangya Kamahayamikan, a 10th century text produced during the reign of King Sindok from East Java. Uh, following Asinjakita's rediscovery of Sangya Api Buddha from uh, the so-called ancient Javanese text, he mobilized his disciples from various parts of Indonesia to spread this idea. Speaking of the Buddhayana movement um, that was founded by Ashin Jinarakita, um, which was also a, a movement that encouraged Buddhists in Indonesia to explore doctrines and practices of all the three major uh, schools of Buddhism without having to choose uh, a particular one amongst them. Um, so please tell us more about this Buddhayana movement and especially how it fits into the larger framework of South China Sea Buddhism. Ashin Jirakita considered himself neither a Mahayana nor a Theravada monk. He uh, started a new Buddhist movement called Buddhayana, which he emphasized was in line with the Indonesian motto of unity in diversity. His Buddhayana movement stressed that despite the existence of diverse Buddhist uh, uh, denominations and doctrines, they all lead to a single path or Ikayana to enlightenment. So his vision of a Buddhayana movement was to promote an Indonesian Buddhism or Agama Buddha Indonesia for a culturally and linguistically diverse Indonesian nation. So uh, on the doctrinal level, Ashin Jarakita propagated the idea that Buddhayana was the essence of Buddhism. He thought that the spirit of Buddhist wisdom is the same across all traditions. And his Buddhayana movement was an expression of such a view, which offers an opportunity for Buddhists to explore doctrines and practices of Mahayana, Theravada, and Vajrayana Buddhism without having to choose among them. 
Uh, and he was critical of the view that assumes that sectarian Buddhism as purer Buddhism. And he argued that there was no classification of Mahayana, Theravada, and Vajrayana during the Buddha's time. So uh, instead, uh, Ashin Jarakita believed that the Buddha taught a variety of ways and stages of practice according to the ability of each person. In terms of practice, he encouraged a non-sectarian mixing of doctrines and liturgy practices. Um, he preached that Buddhists should not become fixated on a single sectarian practice and should not consider another approach to be wrong and inferior. The Buddhayana movement is an excellent case to demonstrate the emergence of new forms of Buddhism, which I call South China Sea Buddhism, in maritime Southeast Asia. The movement, which uses Chinese, Pali, and Indonesian languages in their liturgy and scriptures, and promotes non-sectarian mixing of doctrines and practices, is very much a product of trans-regional Buddhist connections across the South China Sea. For instance, we learned that Ashin Jarakita kept the Theravada precepts of not handling money and not eating afternoon, and he maintained the Mahayana practice of vegetarianism. According to my interviewees, he did so to bridge the Vinaya practices of both traditions. Later in the 1980s, he grew a beard to look like a Mahayana elder monk, uh, but continued to dress in Theravada robes. So from his personal practice and his appearance, it was evident that Asim Jarakita wanted to stress that he was neither a Theravada nor a, Maya, nor a Mahayana monk, a combination of both. Yeah, it's definitely very fascinating. And just uh, just out of my curiosity and an extra question, um, does he also incorporate um, esoteric Buddhism or esoteric practices um, and teachings into the Buddhayana movement? Oh, yes, absolutely. So he uh, incorporated uh, esoteric uh, Buddhist, uh, in, uh, kind of, uh, Buddhist mantras, but also encouraged his disciples to practice a wide variety of Buddhist teachings and liturgical practices, including esoteric or Vajrayana Buddhist practices. Um, during my few work, I interviewed some of his disciples from the Vajrayana Buddhist tradition, and some of them were ordained in, uh, in, in, fact, in India, and they were uh, also disciples of the Dalai Lama. Mm. Oh, wow, this is super fascinating. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and, and your book is also a, um, a book, I think, that really reflects on the idea of Buddhist modernism, right? So it's a book about modernity as well. And the coda of the book reflects on this um, topic specifically, especially in the context of the South, uh, South China Sea. Um, so after seeing how these three different Buddhist figures of the book um, have each articulated um, their visions for a kind of Buddhist modernity, um, what are the big takeaways on Buddhism, um, diasporic communities, and also modernity? Uh, thank you. That is, that's a great question. Uh, well, I think there are two takeaways um, on, uh, on the issues of Buddhism, diasporic communities, and modernity. I think first, uh, and, uh, first and foremost, Monk's emotion shows us how a study of the connected history of Buddhist communities in China and Southeast Asia offers new ways to consider Buddhist uh, mobility and transnational religious networks in the region. We can conceptualize South China Sea as a zone for transregional uh, circulations of people, ideas, and resources other than the already known economic, geopolitical, and security perspectives. In fact, uh, as a French historian, Denis Lombard, has written, it's possible to consider South China and Southeast Asia connected by the South China Sea as part of one region in the same way that Fernand Bourdieu studied the history of the Medi- uh, Mediterranean. So by crossing the artificial spatial boundary uh, and frontier between China and Southeast Asia, we are able to bring Southeast Asia into the study of Chinese Buddhism and Chinese Buddhism into the study of Southeast Asian Buddhism. Um, and second, um, I think we can what we can learn from this Chinese 
diasporic monks uh, is that these um, Chinese migrant monks were important actors in the making of Buddhist modernism in maritime Southeast Asia. Uh, I think the concept of Buddhist modernism provides a critical lens to understand South China Sea Buddhism. The three monks uh, in my book, Chukmo, uh, Yenpei, and Asin Jarakita, are useful case studies to explore the questions of Buddhist modernism in post-colonial Southeast Asia. Building on the works of Anne Hansen and David McMahon, I have discussed how these three monks are each a significant figure in the Buddhist community of their respective Southeast Asian country, articulated Buddhist ideas which they deem relevant to modern life and society. Each of them put in motion their thoughts and ideas and rely upon scriptural teachings and local claims to interpret what modern Buddhism entails in order to confront the realities of the modern uh, post-colonial nation states. Thank you. Yeah, it's a lot to think about, definitely. Um, and lastly, your book is a recent and really exciting addition to the growing scholarship on transnational and transregional Buddhism. Um, so what suggestions and advices do you have for scholars who might be also trying to conduct research on Buddhism with this kind of approach that's, um, that goes beyond the national? Well, my biggest piece of advice for scholars who are trying to conduct research on transnational Buddhism is to learn as many languages as possible. As a historian of maritime Southeast Asia's you know, Buddhist institutional and intellectual history, I'm unable to work directly in Burmese, Khmer, Laos, Thailand, and Vietnamese sources. And, I, and that's why I cannot trace many of the networks and interactions among monastics in Greater China and Southeast Asian countries. The evidence of Chinese Mahayana and Southeast Asian Theravada Buddhist connections discussed in my book reveals that Chinese and Chinese diasporic monks were interested in going to mainland Southeast Asia to exchange ideas and learn from their Pali-oriented colleagues during the 20th century. And uh, in other words, the South China Sea Buddhist networks linking Chinese monks to maritime Southeast Asia have also kept the Chinese Buddhists of Indonesia, Malaysia, and Singapore in touch with the Buddhist institutions and monastics uh, in Burma, Cambodia, Laos, Thailand, and Vietnam. So there remains much to learn about the patterns of Buddhist circulations in the South China Sea, and perhaps um, and the ways um, in which modernist Buddhist ideas overlap with and perhaps facilitate one another. I think further research on the writings of Chinese monks in maritime Southeast Asia, along with Burmese, Khmer, Lao, Thai, and, and Vietnamese sources from the mainland can help to construct a more comprehensive picture of East and Southeast Asian Buddhism. So I hope that other more linguistically endowed scholars can further unpack the connected history of Buddhist communities in the region and help us better understand the flow of deeper ideas and resources that shape South China Sea Buddhism. And of course, more stories of uh, transnational Buddhism remain to be told. So yes, learn more languages. <laughs> Thank you. That's a very uh, practical advice. Yet yeah, I also hope that you know more scholars will join this growing trend of scholarship, um, looking beyond the national borders. Um, I, I think a lot of this um, has to be collaborative in a way, right? Hopefully, more collaborative uh, projects will also come out in the future. Um, I think we've taken up a lot of your time, Dr. Chad. Before I um, let you go, we have one final question for you. Um, can you tell us about your current projects that you're working on now? Absolutely. So I'm currently working on two book projects. My first project is tentatively titled uh, Beyond the Broader Buddha, Buddhism, and po Buddhism in Post-Colonial Indonesia. I plan to examine the role of Chinese Indonesians in the Buddhist revival and their complicated relations with the, post, uh, with the authoritarian anti-Chinese government during the New Order period and the post-authoritarian and during the post-authoritarian transition. 
Beyond the Borobudur raises new questions and possibilities for the study of Southeast Asian Buddhism. My research aims to consider how Indonesian monastics and laities were active agents in the modernizations and the reconfiguration of Buddhism in the world's largest Muslim nation. This project also aims to trace the trans-regional trans Buddhist networks between Indonesia and other Buddhist communities in East, South, and Southeast Asia. Uh, for this project, I have a forthcoming article that uses the case of an Indonesian Buddhist rock band to explore the uh, development and the performance of modernist Buddhist music in post-colonial Indonesia. Uh, so stay tuned. <laughs> um, wow, very exciting. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> well, and uh, my second project uh, is tentatively titled Dharma Crossings. Longton and the making of Nanyang Buddhism. This project adopts a micro-historical approach to uncover Longton's transnational religious career, focusing on his religious activities and networks. Um, so I plan to draw on Longton's autobiography and other writings to discuss what it was like to be a monk uh, and uh, how it was like the study in the Buddhist academy, the pressures of war and social unrest, religious affiliation, corrections, and um, the chi Chinese diaspora experiences in Southeast Asia. So uh, in this uh, project, I attempt to uncover how the life and career of Longkun can further our understanding of South China Sea Buddhism as well as the connected history of Buddhist communities in South in China and Southeast Asia. Wow, these are all um, really great, exciting uh, projects, and I really like the title "Dharma Crossings." Um, you really pick great titles for your books, <laughs> so um, I really look forward to reading them. Hopefully, um, they'll come out soon, and I'm sure you know some of our listeners will also be looking forward to your works too. Um, I guess uh, this is it. So I've taken up a lot of your time already. And thank you so much again for, you know, taking this extra time out of your busy schedule to talk to us about your really exciting book. Yeah, um, thank you so much for having me on the show. Thank you so much. Yeah. And um, until next time, hope to have you again on the show um, to talk about your next book. <laughs> thank you. Fingers crossed. <laughs> okay, until next time. Bye-bye.